The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 64, Abrahamic Religion. last episode of the History of the World podcast, we talked about Hinduism and Buddhism, which are two of the big five religions of the modern world. The other three religions that make up this set of five are Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Collectively, these three are called the Abrahamic religions, named so because of their common link to a shepherd who lived in the ancient world called Abraham. Abraham was born in the city of Ur-Kazdin, which some scholars identify as the Mesopotamian city of Ur, the subject of one of our episodes during Volume 2. Abraham lived at an indeterminable time in ancient history. He is the son of a man called Terah, According to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Tanakh, Abraham received a message from God, which we recognise as the Abrahamic covenant. In this covenant, Abraham was told to migrate from Mesopotamia to Canaan, in the Levant where the land would belong to his descendants. God would tell Abraham that the number of his descendants would be plentiful and enough to be recognised as a nation of people. This incarnation of God from the book of Genesis is recognisable as the entity named El, which as a concept we also spoke at length about during volume 2, particularly episode 10. Abraham would have two sons of particular significance to our story. Ishmael would become the father to the Arabs and is therefore an important part of the origin of Islam. His half-brother was Isaac, who fathered a son called Jacob. Jacob would be given the new name Israel, and his twelve sons would become the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel, fundamental to the story of the Jews. One of the most controversial subjects in relation to ancient Canaanite religion is the ambiguity of the relationship between differently named deities such as El and Yahweh and how they were linked to just one overriding god, 
that is the only god in a world that by and large was otherwise polytheistic in nature. The Abrahamic religions are unique and distinct for their unusual monotheistic nature. In other words, that they believe that there is only one God. Despite the fact that this ambiguity does exist in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is the introduction of the story of how one God created the universe. The book of Genesis is also the first book of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. The Tanakh was a collection of scriptures that would become the sacred scriptures of the Jewish religion. Christianity would branch off from Judaism when the Romans were gradually taking over all of the lands of the Eastern Mediterranean and as such they would retain these sacred scriptures and incorporate them into their own distinct Bible. When Muslims constructed their religious texts called the Quran, many aspects from the book of Genesis were transferred to it. Each of these religions maintained the existence of one Almighty God. Moses The earliest of the three Abrahamic religions was Judaism. Beyond the book of Genesis, we can see the lifetime of Moses as the first time that we hear from the God called Yahweh in the second book of the Tanakh called Exodus. Two things worth mentioning here are the fact that Genesis and Exodus are the names from the Christian Bible and that the Hebrew names for these books are Bereshit and Shemot. The other thing is that Moses is the one individual mentioned more times than any other in the Quran as a revered prophet who was sent to Egypt by Allah, with Allah being the Arabic word for God. Many Muslims consider Moses' life to have spiritual links to the life of the Prophet Muhammad, who founded their own religion during the first millennium. Often we look at things from a religious and a historian's point of view, and there can be a strong desire to try to find common links between the two things, in order for both sides to offer credibility to each other, in a world where this desire hasn't always been the case. The case can also be said for separate religions too, from those who have a desire to demonstrate religious tolerance in these religions, which all too often in history have shown great religious intolerance. So where Judaism, Christianity and Islam all have a recognition of Moses being linked to the Israelites in Egypt and of him having important significance, being chosen for greatness by God, historians have also specifically looked for tangible evidence that the Israelites were in Egypt. And although the evidence has been scant, there is still a strong desire to discover the link. So historians generally do not work against religious scripts and religious sects, but do look for links to validate particular elements of religious scriptures, which are all undoubtedly founded on something. The Jewish story of Moses tells us of how he had led an exodus of Jewish slaves from Egypt. While making this daring and dangerous escape, God appeared before him and delivered a covenant, similarly 
in nature to Abraham's vision. God famously issued Moses with the Ten Commandments, which set out the boundaries of a peaceful society. The agreement was that Moses would dictate these commandments to the emancipated Jews, and that in return God would protect them in their promised land in Israel, called the Promised Land as it had been promised to Abraham many generations before. Talmud Moving on from the story of Moses, it appears that a kingdom of Israel was established and that more evidence from different sources help us to refine the veracity and the historicity of biblical texts. It may have been during the 10th century BCE that the kingdom of Judah became a distinct entity from Israel. There isn't much other than biblical texts to confirm that though. The capital of the kingdom of Judah was likely to be the city of Jerusalem, home of Solomon's temple, which had been built before the split. There is certainly more to suggest that the Assyrians did gain control of the lands of Israel and Judah during the 8th century BCE, and we explored this during our Volume 2 episode on the Siege of Lachish, which incidentally was Episode 8. It would be towards the end of the 7th century BCE that the Medes and the Babylonians destroyed the Assyrian Empire. And this might have seemed like a good thing for the Jews, but it was a case of better the devil you know, as the Babylonians gained control of Judah and demonstrated no sympathy towards the Jews. The Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar would demand tribute from the Judeans and the Judeans would initially pay but then begin to snub the Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar would punish the Judeans by deporting large amounts of their population to Babylon. Even though the Achaemenid Persians under Cyrus the Great would defeat the Babylonians just a few generations later and allow many of the deported populations to return to Jerusalem, However, the impact of this Babylonian deportation had already taken place and Jewish populations would exist independently from each other in both cities and their identities would become distinct. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Solomon's temple when he deported the Jewish population. But the returning Jews would build a second temple which would last until its destruction by the Romans in the year 70. The two Jewish populations during the Common Era would develop their own academias, where Jewish tradition would be discussed and the agreed laws and customs would be recorded in a text called the Talmud. As such, there would be two Talmuds, a Palestinian Talmud and a Babylonian Talmud. Eventually, the lands of Babylon would come under Islamic rule, but the Jews were tolerated by the Muslims and the Babylonian Talmud would eventually take precedence over the Palestinian version. The city of Jerusalem has always held a position of great religious significance to all of the Abrahamic religions, and therefore having control of this city was not only important to populations, kingdoms and empires who observed any of these three religions, 
but also to the polytheistic empires of Rome and Persia, who were very interested in controlling these lands too, as it was a significant central land between Rome, Greece, Egypt and Persia, and so it would be a powerful addition to have this land under your influence. Jesus of Nazareth Going into the Common Era, Jerusalem was very certainly the sacred city of Jewish tradition. This was before the existence of Christianity and Islam, so Judaism was the only recognisable Abrahamic religion at this point. The biggest threat to the religious identity of Jerusalem appeared to be the Romans, whose success was measured on changing the culture of conquered lands, which would have involved trying to install Roman religion within the Second Temple, especially during the reign of the Roman Emperor Caligula in around the year 40. The very nature of Judaism was about to change and a schism would appear that would result in a version of Judaism that would quickly become completely distinct from Judaism and it would centre around a character who lived and died in the lands of Judea before the reign of the Roman Emperor Caligula and his name was Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was a teacher of the Jewish faith but his teachings were somewhat controversial with Jewish fundamentalists who very likely feared Jesus' influence among Jewish populations who saw him performing acts of healing that led them to believe him to be divine. The traditional Jews would turn him over to the Romans and this would lead to his execution. His execution martyred him with his followers who would proclaim him as a Messiah and the Son of God. They would also proclaim him to be born of a virgin mother and resurrected after his death by crucifixion before ascending to heaven. Judaism doesn't necessarily reject the claim that Jesus could be a deity, but they don't consider him to be a messiah. So although it's not always possible to be categorical in the Jewish attitude to Jesus, we can be confident that he is not regarded as anything more than a divine individual and in some contingents he may not be regarded as anything more than a teacher of Judaism with dangerously radical ideas. Islam has a much more accepting view of Jesus, but they do consider him to be a Muslim prophet sent by Allah to teach the children of Israel to follow a path less in line with Judaism and therefore the straight path of Islam. Although Muslims do not see him as the son of Allah, they do believe he was the result of a virgin birth and that Allah raised him to heaven before his death so they don't believe that his crucifixion happened. Muslims believe that there will be a second coming of Jesus, which is a thought supported by Christians. Even though Islam holds Jesus in very high esteem, many Christians actually believe that he is an incarnation of God himself. And this is such a radical claim when you consider how Islam did not recognisably exist and Judaism did not recognise him as anything special. So radical was the claim that followers of Jesus could really not be closely associated with the Jewish doctrines, 
and would therefore be viewed as worshippers of Jesus Christ, and therefore Christians. The Roman Principate Back in Volume 2, we spoke of the expansion of the Assyrian Empire into the Promised Land and how the Assyrians would deport large numbers of Israelites and Judeans to other areas of the lands under Assyrian rule, and particularly Mesopotamia, but much further upriver than Babylon. This was during the end of the 8th century. We're also aware of the Babylonian exile of the 6th century. These were the earliest known dispersals of the Jewish population to lands outside of the Promised Land. Jerusalem remained within Achaemenid Persian borders after Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews passage back to Jerusalem, although some families opted to stay in Babylon where their descendants lived up until the 20th century as Iraqi Jews. The Achaemenids would be overthrown by Alexander the Great, whose Macedonian Empire would be broken up among his successors, the Diadochi, after his death. Jerusalem would come under the influence of Ptolemaic Egypt when Ptolemy I Sota, the first Ptolemaic pharaoh, forcefully took command of Jerusalem, deporting tens of thousands of Jews to Egypt where they would gain an identity as an important part of the Ptolemaic army. Jerusalem would pass into the Seleucid Empire when the great Antiochus III ruled, but the Egyptian Jews didn't return as they had already become a strong community within the city of Alexandria. When Antiochus III's son Antiochus IV attempted to forbid Jewish worship in Jerusalem, this led to the celebrated Maccabean Revolt which restored the Jewish identity to Jerusalem and led to the Hasmonean dynasty of rulers over the ever more independent kingdom of Judea. The Hasmoneans would remain the ruling dynasty of Judea up until the arrival of the Roman military leader and statesman Pompey in the Near East. Pompey took control of the remaining Seleucid lands of the Levant and then turned his focus on Judea and Jerusalem. Before the arrival of Pompey, many Jews had already headed westwards for a new life away from the warring and occasionally oppressive Hellenists. They would head to Greek and Roman lands and even in the city of Rome where they would become a community of a significant size. After Pompey successfully conquered Judea and brought it under Roman subjugation, it appears that Jewish practices and traditions were initially tolerated. During the first century of the Common Era, things would change significantly, and it is debatable how much impact that the emergence of Christianity had an influence on this. The cult of Jesus Christ within Jewish lands is unlikely to have had any widespread impact until after the death of Jesus himself. So when Tiberius outlawed Jewish worship in the city of Rome, it is unlikely to think that this was caused by the emergence of this cult or sect of Judaism, 
especially when we consider that traditional Jews showed no desire to defend Jesus Christ or his followers when they surrendered him to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. It is potentially suggested by the pen of Roman historian Suetonius that Emperor Claudius may have expelled the Jews from Rome altogether because of the cult of Jesus Christ creating problems within Rome and its empire. It would be no surprise to know that the Romans would see Christianity as radical Judaism and simply punish the Jews altogether. Jewish traditions would not have been important to the pagan Romans. The relationship between Rome and the Jews would deteriorate over the coming decades with the Romans attempting to Romanize Jewish communities. The second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the future Roman emperor Titus while serving as a military leader under his father Emperor Vespasian in the year 70. By the rule of Emperor Hadrian, there was a concerted effort to extinguish the identity of Judea in order to further debilitate Jewish culture, which in the Roman mind was a troublesome religion, and in the Jewish mind was their God-given right. After the Bar Kokhba revolt of the 130s, the Jews and Judaism was completely expelled from Jerusalem. The Roman Dominant The whole culmination of Roman tensions within the Jewish community reverberated to the point where Christians were actually granted more rights to live and practice in Jerusalem than Jews. So there was a definite distinction between the two religious sects in the minds of the Romans by now. The only clearly defined tension between the Romans and the Christians before this time was when Nero supposedly blamed the Christians for the Great Fire of Rome in the year 64, which has equally been suggested to be instigated by Nero himself. Religious persecution always seemed to exist within the Roman Empire to lesser and greater degrees, as it is recorded that Christian persecution increased during the reign of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, but there is very little to suggest a conscious program of cleansing, similar to that which happened to the Jewish community under Hadrian. It may have just been a desire to restrict anti-pagan practices to protect Roman culture, we certainly know that a Christian bishopric within Jerusalem seemed to survive the drama of the second century that we have already described. The problem for the Roman Empire was that Roman citizens themselves were starting to be seduced by the mission of the Christian church and were beginning to apostatise from their pagan traditions. It is possible that modern Romans were looking at their own traditions and questioning the requirement to make sacrifices to the gods when Christianity was preaching what appeared to be a simple and empathetic message, worshipping one almighty and protective God. The relationship between Rome and the Christian church is a little confusing with some suggestion that the Romans did not consider Christianity to be a recognisable religion in its own right, in contrast to Judaism. Although this could have simply been due to the fact that Judaism had simply been legally recognised during the rule of Julius Caesar 
and that Christians had consciously moved away from legal Judaism. So when Emperor Decius during the 3rd century declared that all citizens were required to make sacrifices to the Roman gods to legitimise their honour of his imperial standing, the Jews were legally exempt and the Christians were not. So a persecution of the Christians took place as a byproduct of this particular episode. So now there was a renewed ill feeling between Romans and Christians which led to decades of tension and waves of persecutions. However, the Roman Empire had changed significantly over time and more citizens were sympathising towards the Christian cause. So these persecutions are likely to have had polarising effects within the Roman Empire. Different emperors would start or stop persecutions according to their own feelings and inclinations. More famously, Emperor Diocletian would issue edicts for strong armed persecutions against Christians who refused to sacrifice, where Emperor Constantine the Great would issue an edict outlawing religious persecution and officially recognising Christianity as a religion in its own right. Constantine's relationship with Christianity is well documented, and if you want to find out more about this chapter of Christian history, then go back to episodes 47 to 49. The Spread of Christianity Since being ejected from Jerusalem, Judaism existed in pockets in areas and cities within the Roman Empire. Christianity began to proliferate in a similar manner, despite not being legally recognised, like Judaism. The legal recognition of Christianity within the Roman Empire came after Emperor Constantine the Great issued the Edict of Milan in the year 313. Such was the growing popularity of Christianity that it was officially proclaimed the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380 by Emperor Theodosius I. Dioceses were established where a bishop would be responsible for his local region from a religious standpoint. Despite the fact that the centre of Roman politics would move away from the Italian peninsula to the newer and more modern city of Constantinople, which is the modern Turkish city of Istanbul, the most important bishopric would be the bishopric of Rome. Christianity seems to have promoted itself well since its inception and the apostolic age, and so its message of warmth, love and direction to all people from one proactive God may have appealed to the masses over the idolatry and reactive nature of the Roman gods who were there to be appealed to by the masses. Christianity's God was willing to lay down a set of rules for people to live by, but would be willing to forgive misdemeanours. This could be the reason why this radical and legally unrecognised sect of Judaism very quickly became the most dominant religion of Europe. Just as with Buddhism though, Christianity was also susceptible to splintering off into different versions of itself and also be at odds with itself, with Christians willing to persecute each other over their differences of opinion. 
it would be the Nicene Creed that would act as the foundation for the version of Christianity that was adopted as the official Roman religion. The Bishopric of Rome started out from a Christian church in the city of Rome, just as other Christian churches emerged during the Apostolic Age of the first century. The first Bishop of Rome was Peter, who was one of Jesus' twelve apostles. Following a Christian council in Jerusalem in the year 49, it was deemed acceptable that Christianity could be preached to pagan worshippers, otherwise known as the Gentiles, as well as the Jewish community. So this encouraged Christian mission work. Peter would set up the Christian church in Rome, becoming Rome's first Christian bishop and therefore we can regard him as the first Pope of Rome, a religious tradition that has survived over 2,000 years to the present day. The reason why Rome was so important by comparison to other bishoprics is due to its links both to the original power base of the Roman Empire and its links to Peter the Apostle. If we go all the way back to our Roman series of podcasts and particularly the episodes about Julius Caesar, then we discuss the position of the highest protector of religion in Rome being named Pontifex Maximus. During the Roman Republic it was much more of a political honour, but then it became the role of the Roman Emperor himself since the days of Julius Caesar. With the Pontifex Maximus being the chief representative of Roman pagan ritual and tradition, the title became somewhat meaningless and obsolete after the Christianisation of the Roman Empire. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476, and eventually the Byzantine Empire, which was the evolution of the Eastern Roman Empire during the 15th century, the Bishop of Rome, and therefore the Pope, would revive the title of Pontifex Maximus to add more depth and validation to his supremacy over other bishoprics. Being able to trace the papacy back to St Peter would also give the Church of Rome great legitimacy right from the beginnings of Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. So the Bishop of Rome has been considered to be the supreme pontiff, somewhat synonymous with the term Pontifex Maximus for those reasons. One of the greatest popes was Gregory I, who was the 64th Bishop of Rome from the year 590. By Gregory's time, a great number of non-Roman societies had been touched and seduced by the message of Christianity and mass conversions of peoples and nations had taken place across the lands of Europe and particularly Western Europe. The Western Roman Empire itself was a distant memory and so it was down to the popes of Rome to play a first-hand role in the politics of Rome itself as it had become a comparatively weak city in the game of European politics. Pope Gregory would instigate a new wave of missionary work that would promote Christianity as a charitable and welcoming religion in an otherwise ruthless medieval world of invasion and greed. Gregory was known for sending Augustine to Britain to promote Christianity in a land where Germanic invasions had done much to overshadow Christianity. Muhammad 
Shortly after the papacy of Gregory the Great in Rome, a long way east in the Arabian Peninsula, lived a man called Muhammad. Muhammad was born in around the year 570 in the city of Mecca, which is in the modern country of Saudi Arabia. Mecca would have very likely have still been predominantly polytheistic before the lifetime of Muhammad. Muhammad's story involved him being visited by the archangel Gabriel. Gabriel is known from the Hebrew Bible. Following the message from Gabriel, Muhammad started to preach the message of monotheism among the local Arab populations and this was the origin of what we consider to be Islam. Once again, it may have been the message of morality and the value of instruction and direction that appealed to the population and Muhammad would be able to amass a great following who would have faith in his monotheistic teachings. Muhammad would record the messages delivered to him from God via the Archangel Gabriel and these scriptures would be the origin of the Islamic texts called the Quran, which is the recital of God's words through the Archangel Gabriel. Much of the Arabic terms are now familiar to us in the modern world. The Arabic word for God is Allah. The Arabic word for recitation is Quran. The Arabic word for submission is Islam. And the Arabic word for someone who submits is Muslim. When we say submit, we mean a submission to the one and only God. Biblical characters such as Abraham, Moses and Jesus are identified by Muslims as among the prophets of God, with Muhammad being the last of the list of prophets. Islam was not a new mindset in the minds of Muslims though, despite its emergence and proliferations during and after the lifetime of the prophet Muhammad. But it was a correction of the misinterpretations of the teachings of biblical prophets as presented by Judaism and Christianity. Islam would also suffer from schisms that affected other religions as representatives would argue about the interpretations of Muhammad's teachings. The Islamic Caliphate of Rashidun was a new nation which emerged from Muhammad's heartlands in Arabia and fast took over the lands of the former Sassanid Empire of Persia. This would aid the spread of Islam throughout Persian lands and would facilitate its spread to cover a vast area in a very similar way that Christianity had done in Europe. By the year 900, Islam had reached Central Asia and the Indus Valley as well as dominating the lands of North Africa and crossing over the Strait of Gibraltar onto the Iberian Peninsula. The Islamic movement onto the Iberian Peninsula actually took place as early as the beginning of the 8th century, where they would allow the Jews to practice their religion freely, which had not always been the case under the Christianised Visigoths, who a hundred years earlier had outlawed Jewish practice before relaxing their religious intolerance as the 7th century rolled on. This was a very early example of the meeting of Abrahamic religions in what has remained a complex and strained relationship between them in their various geographical settings. And that is aside from when schisms within the individual religions themselves do not take human relationships to their breaking points too. In our general quest for a peaceful existence, great efforts are still being made in the modern world that we live in today 
to allow Abrahamic religions to find a harmonious method of coexistence. Thanks for listening to this week's episode and also thanks to Mark Vinette who introduced this episode promoting his History of North America podcast and a very interesting podcast. He really digs deep into history there going right back to the tectonic evolution of North America as a continent and and exploring the age of dinosaurs which is way far back earlier than than I ventured right at the start of this podcast um, itself the history of the world podcast so uh, kudos to Mark Vinette and uh, definitely worth a listen and uh, we sort of cover North America with that podcast in uh, in a sense that we haven't really been able to in this podcast so far eventually we will but um, if you can't wait for us to get to that point, then I'd strongly recommend checking Mark's podcast out. It's the History of North America podcast, tracking the history of Canada, United States and Mexico. Thanks for listening to this week's episode once again. And I was very excited to write this episode. It was a fascinating topic. The emergence of Abrahamic religions, really learning about the uh, the relationship between the three religions. And uh, also we know that there's so much more to come in terms of the history of these three religions uh, and their timelines together. So um, particularly fascinating to see where it all stems from. And of course, this really is a, an extension to the uh, to the uh, Volume 2 episode of uh, the History of the World podcast, back episode 10 when we explored the ancient religion of uh, the Levant and Canaan. And this was a uh, podcast episode that was made into a video by Nick Barksdale of the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, uh, the YouTube channel that has made probably over 20 videos now. Um, of History of the World podcast episodes. And this particular uh, podcast episode uh, on ancient Canaanite religion has, um, has had four, over 400,000 uh, individual watches. And that's an astonishing number. And it's um, by far the greatest um, podcast episode uh, watch count for any of my episodes and any of the videos that Nick Barksdale has put on to his YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages. So um, maybe there's scope for this episode uh, to then uh, follow in the footsteps of that one. We just don't know. But as ever, the most important thing for me is that um, I hear from you. What did you think of this week's episode? And uh, We've now covered the five major religions of the modern world and, and their inception and how they uh, how they uh, began to have the identity that they have today. Um, do you think I, I paid enough respect to them all um, when I was writing these episodes? What did you think? What is your opinion? Let me know. I'm very, very interested. Now then, of course, if you're loving the podcast and you want to help out, you can. You can make a financial contribution through the Patreon page. So if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, there's plenty of stuff to look at there. Let me tell you, there's a lot of interactive stuff there. 
discussion forum. I've not seen much activity on that yet. And, you know, something um, that happens is people write me emails asking me questions about particular aspects of history, and I always try to reply to them. But often I think that they're better directed to the discussion forum where we can all have a bit of input and we can all discuss it because there's no point in everyone thinking that I'm the oracle of all information. I'm certainly not. And there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that certainly can teach me a thing or two. So I think a lot of these discussions are very much better directed towards the discussion forum where you can you can get a number of points of view um, in response to your thoughts and opinions, and I think it's a great place to go. However, if you uh, going back to what I said, I did digress slightly there. Um, I was talking about if you wanted to support the podcast, you can. You can mark, make a financial contribution at the Patreon site. Just click on the Patreon link. When you make a financial contribution for as little as one dollar a month, you can become a member of the History of the World podcast. Illuminati, as has. Becky Brindle, Stacey Skelton, Brew, and you slash Roxyerny Bjornsson, who've all become members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you so much for your kind contributions, and you are really helping to support the podcast and, and improve the podcast as you're able to allow me to devote more time to it and to uh, to invest in more resources which gives me more material in which to give a much more well-rounded podcast episode so thank you so much and, and keep up the good work right now i think uh, what we need to do i think we need to have a bit of a competition who can write the loopiest uh, apple podcast review for the history of the world podcast it's always my favorite time of the uh, of the uh, week when I get to read out the lunatic, uh, crazy and um, bat sh uh, etc um, reviews for the podcast. So let's go for it. So if you think you can outdo these, uh, by all means, go onto Apple Podcasts and uh, I promise I'll read it out. Give us a five star review and a, and a crazy uh, a crazy text afterwards let's see what has been written in we've got one underscore max r from the united states of america's america's put great podcast i love this podcast extremely informative we've got evan o'leary from the united states of america's put good very good very good uh say uh, sag anthony from the United States of America. But I love this podcast. Your accent rocks the house and twice on Sundays. And I love the content. Keep up the great work, sir. And then uh, finally, we've got the mystery guy from Canada. Who's put um, fantastic presentation of human history. Um, your pacing content and vocabulary is just right for me. The way you assimilated all the different resources and presented the material was spot on. I am glad you are sticking to the facts when they are substantiated and presenting alternative narratives when they seem appropriate. I motored through Volume 1 and have now finished Ancient Egypt and Volume 2. I was an ancient history buff 50 years ago. And now you have revived my love and wonder of, of ancient civilizations. Thank you so much for the excellent stuff you are producing. 
Today is March the 17th, 2021, and I've been totally absorbed by your podcast since I came upon it a couple of months ago. Keep up the great work. Uh, By the way, I am writing this review in response to your challenge during the Ancient Egypt episodes to Canadians to send in a review. I hope this review from Quenel, British Columbia, Canada, helps. Cheers. Well, what a fantastic review that. It's got, that's got to be the, the winner this week, that one. Um, but anyway, uh, if you think you can outdo that, then go directly over to Apple Podcasts and write your mental review now. Well, that's it uh, for, for another week. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to take a completely different um, route altogether. We're going to leave all of this religion behind and we're going to be heading over to China where we're going to uh, take up the story that we left way back in Volume 2 many, many, many months ago um, when we uh, we discovered the fall of the Shang Dynasty. So your homework for this week will be to go back and listen to that Shang Dynasty episode so that you're all warmed up and ready for what happens next. So next week we're going to be looking at the Zhou Dynasty of China and uh, we're going to follow it right through to the period of the Warring States, right, right through the Spring and Autumn period to the uh, to the Warring States period. So many, many centuries to cover next week of Chinese history. Uh, we'll look forward to that one. Anyway, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And as ever, please, over the course of the next seven days, don't forget to be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.